a Radio 191 FM podcast. There with a track called Empress, uh, and that kind of really ties in a little bit with what we're about to talk about. Um, the French, uh, I guess, the, the Empress of the wine world. And right now on the line, I'm joined by David Nash, uh, one half of the team behind the documentary film A Seat Al at the Table. Molina to you, David. Morning, how are you? Not too bad, mate. And yourself? Not too bad, not too bad. How's the desert? You're in Las Vegas. <laughs> I am in Las Vegas. Yeah, it's actually the afternoon here. Uh, but yeah, it's beautiful. It's, uh, you really do get a feeling that you are in the desert. Yeah. I think it's about 50 degrees right now, <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah, I'm hiding inside quite sensibly. Fair enough. Air, air conditioning, eh? We don't really use it that yeah. much here, but um, I can no. imagine it's a godsend over there. Oh, yeah. All right. Uh, new world, old world. Um, wine is a game. Uh, at the ground level, you have sales. You really need to make money. Um, wineries can fall over faster than you can blink. I mean, you can just look at Danny Schuster for that, for an example of that, you know, big name in the in the game in Aotearoa, and, um, you know, you can go under. Um, but the real game, I guess, is on the top floor with the critics, the judges, um, you know, the big names in the game. Um in the wine world uh, and New Zealand is just a, a bit of a bit player uh, and France doesn't really even need to play <laughs> yeah you could definitely say that and there's uh, you know the um, the best producers in France you know can sell every bottle of wine they make regardless the quality every year before they've even made it you know which is quite an enviable place to be in yeah um, and some of some of the producers here in New Zealand are, are definitely getting to that um, level of demand Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, that's definitely the story we're trying to showcase at, uh, in a seat at the table is how we're actually earning our place, um, you know, at that table of, of fine wine. Yeah, and it, it, it needs to be earned. I mean, you can't just have, like, a few good Absolutely. vintages. Uh, you know, no. you, the, this this is a long game, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you look at, uh, you know, the Brakovichs of Kumi River is a great example where, you know, what a great overnight success that only took 70 years. <laughs> You know, it's um, it's it is it's just generations of hard work. There's just no other way to do it. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to achieve what the old world has done in in one lifetime. So to to have you know the advantage of a you know parent or grandparents even who have sort of started you know those kind of research pieces and figured out what grows best where that's a that's a huge advantage. Yeah. Um, that we're only just coming into now in New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, you've got, you, you know, even, it, it's a risk in itself, you know, starting off with, uh, just from planting to the first production takes, uh, first proper picking takes a few years, and you don't even know Absolutely. if it's going to work out. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, that's what, you know, the sort of pioneers like Alan Brady went on the journey with in central Otago, for example, where, you know, they started up a vineyard and they just planted sort of a few rows of kind of everything yeah. and um, you know Pinot Noir put its hand up as being quite well suited so yeah it is, it's, you've got to have a lot of patience I think if you want to play in that fine wine space because you are you know you're sort of you know you're three years before you can even make a wine to see what it's actually like and then you're probably sort of 10 years before you can really put it up there you know at a premium status and and then probably another 10 years before the rest of the world can take notice. So mm. it is a, um, you know, it's a 20-year sort of uh, game plan just to get started. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because, I mean, I guess they planted in the 1860s, I think, you know, during the gold times in Bendigo. 
um, but then, then, then you've, you've got to wait another 120 years before someone really tries it on a commercial scale, or, you know, it try, tries anything. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, sort of detail that goes into it as well. I mean, a lot of those early uh, grape vines that were planted just, you know, weren't quite, quite the right stock or, you know, got a bit diseased or weren't quite suited to our climate. So there's been a huge amount of work that's gone on probably over the last, 30 to 40 years of finding the right, you know, vine, clones, root mm. stocks, all those combinations to make sure that we've got the best possible plants in the ground uh, to, to produce great fruit here. So we're really just seeing the, you know, the fruits of our labour yeah. um, yeah, well, happening right now. A lot of our, I think a lot of the, the central Pinot stock comes from, from the States, right? The, the root stock and stuff. Yeah, correct. So pretty much all the root stocks of all vineyards around the world um, is now from the United States due to a, um, a uh, little uh, aphid-type uh, virus called phylloxera, which actually eats the root stocks of um, grapevines. Um, and because it's, it's an American bug, which they introduced to the rest of the world, which is very... Um, <laughs> Uh, and essentially, when uh, this uh, phylloxera travels right around the world um, and kind of ate all the rootstocks of all the vines, and the only way to have a phylloxera-free vineyard is to actually graft the grapevines you want to use onto American rootstocks because yeah. the American grapevines have become resistant to it over many, many years. <laughs> yeah, thanks, America. Um, <laughs> what's the first wine from Aotearoa that really stood up? That said, hey, I'm over here. We're over here, and we've we've got something. For me, what what's the first wine from Aotearoa that really stood up to the rest of the world and told them that we've got something over here? Oh, without a doubt, um, cloudy cloudy day Sauvignon Blanc. You yeah. know, I think um, people were making Sauvignon Blanc in New Zealand, and it was definitely getting some international acclaim. But I think the style that um, you know Kevin Judd and and the guys there really early on. Ivan Sutherland, um, they were all great names of the wine industry now. You know, they just found a way to extract the most sort of piercingly fresh and fruity, um, you know, characteristics of that grape grown in Marlborough that just no one had ever seen before come out of any region in the world. So mm -hmm. that really did put us on the map um, to, to really open everyone's eyes to New Zealand. Yeah, and I mean, it's a, like we were saying earlier, it's a lucky roll of the dice too, you know. I mean, it's it's not just, it's, you know, it's it's all about, you know, the the local area, the local microclimates, everything has just come together to make those Marlborough Sauvignon Blancs, especially in those two valleys, just exactly absolutely. how brilliant they are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, you've got, we mentioned Central Reds before, and um, being, um, you know, I used to live in Cromwell, so you know, being a Cromwell boy, I have to. I, 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 yeah, very much so. You know, nothing like <laughs> nothing like anything that comes from Felton Road or anything like that. I, I, mean, I mean, the road itself, not necessarily just the vineyard, but um, you know, and Reds in the desert. And we, we mentioned um, Alan in um, in in Gibson Valley. Why well, is uh, ringing? Yeah, yeah. There's so so many great pinots, but I mean, you, you know, you. you Back in the mid-80s, you probably you would never have thought wine driving through there, and now you can't go anywhere near Central without thinking of Pinot Noir, without thinking of Rieslings even, or, or Pinot Gris. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that, you know, the, 
the funny thing is, is that that's just down to a few people. You know, Alan Brady was just one of the people at the time. You had, um, you know, the Mill family over at Ripon and mm-hmm. um, a few other, um, you know, sort of farming um, pioneers, really, who thought they would give grape growing a go. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we really do owe a lot to those people for trying very early on what grape styles and what styles of Pinot Noir would, would grow well there. And, uh, you know, I think another reason why we've kind of used the French as a bit of a benchmark uh, in the documentary is that we really, in New Zealand, we're following a similar sort of model to what they have there from a bit of culture point of view, where they've identified areas that grow certain things really well, yeah. and then they're just focused in on doing that. And, you know, Central Otago and, and the Pinot, you know, grapes is a great example. Uh, you know, Marlborough, Sauvignon Blanc, things like that. So I think, um, you know, the the beauty of Central Otago is that we've had some people there for a very, very long time, but those people are still working the land and making wine today. It's quite amazing. You know, Alan Brady still makes his own uh, his own label, you know, Wild Irishman, and um, is in the winery tinkering away with all the young winemakers just coming through out of, you know, out of university. It's quite... It's an amazing moment um, in our wine history right now. Yeah, and you mentioned university, um, and, I, and I guess we, we look at um, Lincoln for that um, with the wine growing mm. course. Um, we are starting to produce, because we've, we've got a bit of a history now, we are starting to produce some very good winemakers as well, aren't we? Yeah, and uh, you know, just by virtue of being a fairly young region, we've developed some really strong associations with other great wine regions of the world, and yeah. um, I know you know, Central Otago and Burgundy have an exchange program where, uh, you know, as Nigel from Felton Road explains it, you know, we send our kids to them to be trained and they send our, their kids to us to be trained. So you've got this, you know, wonderful kind of platform for the new recruits coming into the industry to really get exposed to the best of the world before they come back here to kind of put roots down. Yeah, yeah, there are some really good connections growing, and, and I guess that's really yeah. important for us. And that kind of gives us, you know, and then that in itself kind of gives us a little bit more of, of an upstanding in France. Oh, absolutely, yeah, because I think when we were travelling around France filming, you know, I don't think there was a single place we went to where a New Zealander hadn't worked or visited or knew the family or, you know, and that's the great thing, I think, travelling, being a Kiwi, is that you sort of, only one step removed from someone who's had an interaction with a New Zealander or, you know, has some sort of uh, connection there. It's quite special. Yeah, yeah. And one of the other big things, I guess, for, for Kiwis is we're not afraid of trying different things. I mean, the screw cap and all the controversy <laughs> that went with that. Thank God the Zork didn't take off. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, uh, you know, because that was a big thing at the time. It was huge. No one was, you know, no one was screw capping, and we just went for it. Yeah. No, I think, and that's just, you know, you've got people like Sir George Fustinich who they know they trust their gut and they do what they think is right at that time and they are the kind of people that just go all in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the the rest of the wine world was quite abusive to Villa Maria when they went completely cork-free. Yeah. Um, you know, they were one of the very first ones and um, you know they got delisted from you know great restaurants all throughout the states <laughs> and Europe and people just thought it was just an absolute you know abomination that you'd have a wine under screw cap whereas now you know you've got a lot of the great estates in Burgundy and Bordeaux doing 
you know, sort of 10, 20 year research studies on how the wines are actually evolving differently under screw capped cork. So there's a lot of research and understanding going on in France at the moment, but I think it's a consumer led decision, really. Yeah. You know, as one of the French producers says in the film, you know, cork in France, cork is a guarantee of quality, which is a complete oxymoron. Yeah. Yeah. A cork guarantees no quality. That's right. Uh, a screw cap is a guarantee of quality. And um, when you've got winemakers, you know, like Tony Bish or Michael Brakovich who are making, you know, white wines, they want those wines to arrive at the consumer's table on the other side of the world exactly how they made them. Not, yeah. you know, slightly off or slightly tainted or, you know, slightly different than how they intended. And that's the only way to do that is under screw cap. And that's one of the other like, success stories of, of New Zealand, not just um, the screw cap guaranteeing quality, but also the consistency of our vintages, I guess. Like, you know, in yeah. France, they can have, you know, years in between really good vintages. Um, but here, yeah. we have really consistent um, output, don't we, of, of quality. I mean, other years are oh, much better than others, but, you know, we do pretty well. Absolutely. And um, Daniel Lebron, um, you know, he basically credits that that was his main driver for moving to New Zealand and to Marlborough is that he identified that you know the conditions that Marlborough has every year is what Champagne would call a great vintage yeah. and yet we have it year after year so I think you know we've got some pretty special natural assets here in the climate um, and yet we just as the, the older we get and a little bit wiser we begin to understand more and more how, how special it is Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do, do people in France, do they drink our wine? Well, you should, uh, you'll find out when you watch it. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of them do. It was quite funny. We, um, the places that we went to, we, uh, you know, were interviewing them for, for an hour or so. And then um, at the end of it, we said, oh, look, have you tried any New Zealand wine? And probably 99% of them said no. <laughs> or, you know, oh, I've had something once, maybe. And uh, we had a, you know, a bootload of, New Zealand wine, thanks to Air New Zealand. And uh, so we opened some bottles and we filmed the results and all of that is, uh, is in the documentary. Indeed it is, indeed it is. Um, just quickly, I guess, uh, where to for the future for New Zealand wine? I guess China's an emerging market. You've got people like Jing Song uh, in conjunction with Grant Taylor um, producing yeah. some really good wines and moving into that market. Um, you know, is, is that the, the new frontier for wine? Uh, I'm not sure. I think, um, you know, the rest of Europe is kind of just opening its eyes to New Zealand and even, you know, like Russia is a huge emerging Sauvignon Blanc market. Wow. I think we're still, I don't think we've even kind of cracked the surface of Europe in terms of export opportunities. And, and in the States, I think they're just beginning to understand how good our Chardonnay is. They're understanding Pinot Noir and, of course, Sauvignon Blanc. So. I think we've got a long way to go in these markets that we've got a lot of history and a lot of connections in. So I think with the top-end producers, you will see them probably sticking with those markets, yeah. I would say, rather than going into China as a hugely difficult proposition. Um, you know, there are producers like Crown Range Cellar who do that remarkably well because they've got connections there in the local market. Yeah. But it is a very difficult market for a brand new producers to sort of walk into and I know New Zealand wine growers are doing a lot of great great work up there at the moment but yeah I'm not I'm not 100% sure but my instinct is that you know we've spent probably 20 years making these right connections in the US and, and throughout Europe 
And I think if you, you know, nurture those relationships correctly and keep the consumer aware of how good these wines are, then we could create a very, very good market throughout, um, you know, that part of the world. Yeah. Well, I guess... But, you know, I think... Uh, sorry. Um, you know, the, the, the new wave of Chinese consumer, though, which is all about finding that great new thing, you know, you, can't, you can imagine that New Zealand would be pretty high up on that list. Yeah, yeah, without doubt. I mean, I guess, uh, I guess we think here that if we're doing well in the UK, we're doing well in Europe, but that's not the case, is it? I mean, the UK and Europe are two, well, about to be two separate markets. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, the wine knowledge throughout the UK is phenomenal. People understand every aspect of, you know, French wine, and, you know, they understand that a Sancerre is Sauvignon Blanc and a Bordeaux is a Cabernet blend and all those kind of things. It's very, very sophisticated, whereas you go to the rest of uh, Europe and even, you know, mature wine markets like Italy and places like that, we're only just getting into these regions that Mm. produce a lot of their own wine, but it's very, very different to ours. So there's regions like that that are just, switching on to things like Sauvignon Blanc, you know, which is quite an amazing future, I think. Fantastic. All right. Well, um, David, thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to us this morning. No worries. A seat at, my ta- at the table is playing on tomorrow at 2.30 at the Rialto, and then on Sunday at 5 p.m., um, and I'm assuming that Simon will be there for that? And I'll be there as well. Oh, you'll be back? Oh, you'll be, you'll be jet-lagged. Straight from Las Vegas, down to, uh, <laughs> down to see you there. So. <laughs> it's a long flight. Um, good luck with your travels. <laughs> Well, thankfully, Air New Zealand's got a few bottles of wine on board, so I'll, um, I'll do some research I'll, on the way. They have a very good wine list here in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, they do. They do, indeed. All right, hey, well, thank you so much uh, once again, David. Have a, yourself a wonderful day in the desert, and we'll see you uh, back here for winter uh, in a couple of days' time. Fantastic. Thanks Cheers, very much. Cheers. That was a Radio 1 91FM podcast. You can find more at r1.co.nz or wherever quality content is found.